Welcome back to the podcast. You are listening to Let It Out with me, your host, Katie Dalebout. I'm talking to Tina Smaker of The Great Discontent magazine. She's the co-founder and the editor-in-chief, and she's doing some really cool projects coming up outside of that. And you'll hear all about transitions and creativity and vulnerability and change and moving to New York and interviewing and being an introverted extrovert and so many fascinating things. I really liked this conversation and I think you will too. She says this quote at the end that I haven't stopped thinking about or near the end that I haven't stopped thinking about since we recorded this conversation a couple months ago. So stick around for that. I'm going to get right to the episode as quickly as possible. But first I want to tell you about the sponsors. But before that, I have a in-person event coming up on January 24th at the end of the month. That's a Wednesday and it will be a lovely evening talking about journaling and intention setting for the new year. It's a Wednesday night at Cap Beauty, my favorite store in New York City. If you haven't been there yet, this is the time to come. Come and hang out and bring all of your friends. I think it'll be a great time. It's free. It's on Wednesday the 24th and I can't wait to see you there. So before we get to my conversation with Tina, let's thank the sponsors. First up, thank you so much to Splendid Spoon. I can't believe they're a sponsor. You guys probably know them if you've been listening to the podcast for a while because I had the founder, Nicole, on the podcast a couple months ago because Nicole and I met when her and I were roommates at Wonderlust. And ever since then, we've become friends because she's one of my favorite people I've met since I moved here. Her company, Splendid Spoon, offers the most fantastic products. They are soup, and who doesn't want soup this time of year? They combine the power of plants and science and slow cooking to make nutrient-dense, bioavailable food that's easy. You don't have to clean the kitchen with Splendid Spoon, but you'll be eating food that actually makes you feel really good and nourished and is warm and it can fit into any eating strategy that you may have and it will help keep your body feeling really great and their soups and their smoothies taste amazing. I've been living off them for the past couple weeks. I just got a shipment, a delivery from them a couple weeks ago and I love them. So check them out. Supporting the sponsors supports the show And I love doing the show, and I want to keep doing it. So if you want to help me to keep doing it, support the sponsors. Go to Splendid.to. That's Splendid.to slash LetItOut20. That's Splendid.to slash LetItOut20. And this will give you $20 off your first order on any of their plans. That's $20 off any of their plans. Again, their plans are customizable, and they're sustainable for those on any type of a program that they're on. If you are gluten-free, it will work for you. If you are avoiding having lots of sugar, this also works for you. And what I love about this is it's not a cleanse. It's just a way to add more nutrient-dense food into your day and then eat what makes you feel good. And Splendid Spoon will help you to do that. Thank you so much, Splendid Spoon. I love you. 
Also, thank you so much to Care-of. If you've been listening for a while, you know all about Care-of vitamins. They are the best supplement company out there. At least that's what I think. And they are wonderful. They give you customizable packs of vitamins that are personalized with your name on them. Their packaging is beautiful. And all you do is you go to their site and you take a simple quiz. They ask you questions about your diet, your health goals, your sleep, your poop, whatever it is that has to do with your physical body. And from there, they curate for you a custom combination of supplements that will help you meet your health goals. Anyway, their products are convenient, they're great for travel, and best of all, they use the best ingredients and what they source for their vitamins and supplements, and you'll actually end up saving money getting your vitamins through them compared to going to your local health food store. They even now have prenatal and natal supplements for moms and moms-to-be that are customized to exactly what stage of pregnancy and post-pregnancy you might be in. Anyway, I love them. I think you guys will too. If you haven't tried them yet, it's a new year. Now is the time. Go to TakeCareOf.com to get your personalized recommendation and use the code Katie at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E, my name, for 50% off your first order. That's TakeCareOf.com. Use the code Katie at checkout for 50% off. That's half of all the percents off your first order. Thank you so much, Careof. Thank you, Splendid Spoon. Thank you for listening. Stick around to the end. I'm going to tell you the emoji for the episode, and I'll talk to you then. Hopefully see you on the 24th, and talk to you next week and every Wednesday forever, I hope. Love you. Bye. So I've been liking starting this podcast in the present before we get into Mm -hmm. the past and the future and and where, but really where you are today. So what have you been contemplating or realizing or thinking about in the last like day or week or month, but as recently as you can go? Wow. Um, (laughs) that's a loaded question. We just jump right in. We jump right in. Um, I've been thinking a lot about vulnerability in relation to my personal life mostly, but also in relation to the work that I do. I don't know if you want me to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into all of it, so as much as you want. Okay, I mean, I just think that, you know, one of the themes of my life this year has been vulnerability, and it's one of the hardest things for me because it's so tempting to want to look like your life is perfect and post all of the highlights on Instagram and just kind of craft this image that you want to portray of yourself in the world, and um, a lot of things fell apart in my life this year, but also fell together, which we'll probably talk about later, but um, vulnerability has been this ongoing theme, and it seems like the universe um, just keeps giving me opportunities to practice it, and so it reminds me that vulnerability isn't a thing that you choose once, but it's an ongoing choice that you have to keep making, and it's always scary, for me anyway, um, because it means letting others truly see and know you, and that's really scary. But I continue to be amazed by the connection that it brings and how it, um, how others open up in response to it. Mm, yeah, I think all of that I relate to so much and I just think is important to talk about vulnerability and why I like the podcast and the work that, that you do. It's the same thing where it's when it's long form, it's 
you you kind of have to be vulnerable mm-hmm. because what why my podcast is so mm-hmm. long and why I like the medium so much is because it isn't a soundbite and hopefully we get comfortable and forget that we're recording and mm-hmm. just are real people having a conversation and I just have been thinking so much about social media and what you said there about wanting to put out this life that is perfect or is idealistic, wanting to put that out there. But also for me, and I was thinking about this when you were talking, it's you want that to be true too Mm -hmm. on a certain level. Mm -hmm. It's like I want to put that out there and I want it to be true but what's actually better and healthier for you and more relatable and will help you connect with people more is when you put out the really real things. Mm-hmm. Have you found the response to be cathartic for you? Um, definitely. I think that the more real and honest I've been on social media and in real life too, conversations with friends and family, the more people open up in response. And the things that people are most drawn to and respond to the most on social media are the things where I'm just like, hey guys, this is the ugly truth of my life, but there's also beauty in it. And I know I'm not alone. And, you know, a lot of people respond. I've gotten a lot of um, emails and, you know, DMs on Instagram and people just saying, hey, me too. Like I'm going through something this year and this is what it is. Or just saying in general, I'm going through something and I really appreciate you sharing and I'm not sharing to be noble. I'm sharing because I feel like I need my life to be integrated and I want to be the same person online that I am in real life. And um, for me, that means that I have to own my story and tell my truth, whatever it is. Like how ugly or pretty it is, right? That's like in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's a strange thing trying to... Like, it probably felt just as uncomfortable or more uncomfortable to hold it in. And Mm -hmm. you probably had to hold it in for a while before putting it out there. So, and we can, like, go through everything. Um, But, like, what was that feeling, like, Mm -hmm. before sharing something vulnerable on the internet and leading up to it? And did you feel relief after? Oh, definitely. I was so relieved because I finally felt like... I was living wholeheartedly. Yeah. And my entire life, like my my real life and my online life, everything was the same. And I yeah. was I was the same person and I didn't have to think about what I was going to share online yeah. versus what I was telling my friends in real life. Um so just being able to live wholeheartedly and live from this place of, you know, this is me and this is what I'm going through. It feels really good. It's very liberating and I think that um, I hope that it gives others permission to do the same. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need permission, but I think sometimes it helps to see others doing it. And I know for me, it's helped to see others sharing honestly and openly about yeah. their lives. Or just making people feel less alone, mm-hmm. which I think is the goal. Okay, so that now let's kind of go back to, to everything. <laughs> so you, like me, grew up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And... What did you want to be when you were a kid growing up? And did you always know you wanted to move to New York? Um, So when I was a little girl, I loved reading and I loved writing stories. I would say I wanted to be an artist, a writer, a singer. I kind of vacillate between those three things, but always something creative. Um, Where did you grow up? In Port Huron, Michigan. Yeah. 
Yeah, so in the thumb, like southeastern Michigan. I'm from um, East Lansing. Yeah, so I'm about, my hometown is about an hour outside of Detroit, um, right on the river, you can see Canada across the river. Um, it's actually the boyhood home of Thomas Edison, where oh. I'm from, so we have a little statue. Wait, right? literally in yeah. the house you grew up in? No, um, oh, the, the, oh. my hometown. Okay. <laughs> not, not the house, I don't think the house exists okay. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> actually, there's a museum uh, in his honor, but... Um, I didn't know that he was mm-hmm, from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yep, poor Huron. Yep, but he left. Um, I don't know. I'm gonna get the story wrong, so I'm not gonna Google say it for sure. Definitely. But Google it, guys. He left at a young age. Um, so yeah, I'm from I'm from Port Huron, Michigan, and I always wanted to do something creative, but I didn't really see anyone around me taking a non traditional path, and so same. I thought I had to do something. You know, like you, you do high school, and then you do college, and you get a degree, and then you apply for jobs that relate to your degree, yeah. and it was very, like, it was very um Then you get formulaic. benefits and a 401k. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so I did, I did end up getting a degree. I studied social work at Wayne State in Detroit, and I got my bachelor's in social work, and I did work in the field um, about six years post-degree, but before I moved to New York. Um, New York was never on my radar. I think that growing up, New York actually seemed kind of big and scary. And I never visited New York until it was like less less than a year. I visited New York in the fall and then moved in the spring. So um, I didn't have this long love affair with New York like so many people I've met here do. For me, it was kind of an accident, but I'm glad it happened. Yeah. So you were working as a social worker mm-hmm. in Michigan, mm-hmm. and you decided to collaborate with your then-husband mm-hmm. and started the Great Discontent. Mm-hmm. What was that time period like? What Were you feeling at your job? Were you feeling kind of restless and like you wanted to do something else? What was the impetus for that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I was doing social work. I was... I. I worked at this nonprofit while I was in college, and then when I graduated, I took a different position at the same nonprofit. So I was there for 12 years, working with runaway and homeless youth, and it was it was rewarding in many ways, but it was it was very taxing. And yeah. um, my then husband and I had been married for about five years, and we had continued to talk about doing something together creatively. But you know, by the end of the day, it's like I was tired, he was tired. And we just, we would like veg out and watch TV. And then we read the book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which is a wonderful read. And it talks about this um, idea of resistance and how so often the things that we are meant or need to put out into the world, we experience a lot of resistance in actually doing those things, right? And so there's really, you know, what it came down to for me and for him you know, we decided together that there's really no excuse for us to not be doing what we want to do and that there's no magic formula. It's not if we have more money, if we have more time, if we move to a big city. It's like if we're not doing it now, none of those other things are going to be the catalyst for us to do it. So we turned our living room into a studio. We got rid of our our sofa and our TV and our coffee table and all the things that would allow us to vegetate at night. We turned it into a studio, and he had half of the room, and I had half of the room, and we would just brainstorm, and um, we had talked about doing a magazine before, but there's a lot to know to dive into print, and so we started with what we knew, which was I knew I could write. 
he knew he could, um, you know, he could design and develop the site. And so we talked about the design, we talked about the content, the focus and what that would look like. And it really came out of our own curiosity to know how other people pursued these non-traditional careers because we had no idea because we had not seen it done in our lives, right? We had no models. And so we were really curious about the risks they took along the way. If they had aha moments, did they have mentors who helped shape their careers? You know, what did that look like? What really drives them to create? And we wanted to go beyond tools and process because it's easy to find out what tools your favorite creative person uses. You can just Google that. We wanted to go deeper and we wanted it to be all about the person. And so it was, I think it was around like winter of 2010. And then we worked on it through the winter and spring. And then in August 2011, we launched the um, digital magazine. And we didn't know if anyone would read it, but they did. And there was something about it that resonated. You know, I think the just the authenticity and the realness of the people we interviewed, you know, people were just very real about their struggles and the challenges they faced on, on, along the way. And, and that resonated with us and it resonated with the people who read it. And so this community started to grow around it and um, it was unexpected, but amazing. How do you feel like you were able to make the people feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable? Do you feel like it was your social work experience? I think that could be part of it. Um, Ryan and I did the interviews together when we first started, and then he transitioned into more like you know, art direction and creative, and then I was doing more of the interviewing. But one of the things we chose to do early on as part of our process is allow everyone to read their interview before it's published so that they have final say in what goes out. And I think that, you know, when I would transcribe and edit the interviews, it was really important to me to capture that person's voice and to really um, just embody who they are and their spirit in the interview. And I think that I did, I think I did a good job at that because (laughs) people didn't want to make a lot of changes most of the time. So... Um, I think, and then I think once we did enough interviews, you know, there was kind of this reputation that we garnered in the creative community of the quality and the types of interviews that we put out. And so I think we just started to earn trust with the creative community just through our consistency. When you were starting, how did you, how did you do that before you had that trust and that, how did you reach out to people? How did you... You were still in Michigan at that mm-hmm. time, so you were doing yes. the interviews Skype. over Skype. Okay, mm-hmm. and so then, yeah, like what were some of the first, some of the first guests, some of the first interviewees? Like, what did you say in that email of like, you know, hey, there's this soon-to-be magazine. We mm-hmm. think it's gonna be really cool. Mm-hmm. Can we have some of your time? You know. Yeah, exactly. No, we actually started with a few people. You know, this is like the the heyday of Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. The Twitter community and the design community on Twitter was super tight. It was very different than it is now. So our first interview was Dan Rubin, and he now does photography, but at the time he was doing a lot of design and development. And him and Ryan had an online friendship, and so we had actually consulted with him, you know, just as friends. Hey, we have this idea, can we run it by you? And it, would you be our first guest? And he loved it, and he said yes. And then. Um, the second person was a, or a photographer named um, Francesca Talone, who 
think she was in New York at the time, now based in Montreal, and just someone whose work we had followed, again, online friends, asked her, said yes. The third person was Lisa Solberg, who is a fine artist based in um, LA, and we didn't have a connection with her, we just loved her work, and we had already had two interviews out at the time, and just, you know, it was a lot of emailing people and saying, we're doing this thing, this is what it's all about, we're going to make the process fun and easy for you, would you be a part of it, and you know, we, a lot of people said no, but a lot of people also said yes. And I also learned that no doesn't really mean no. Like, it can mean no, but it, like no can be a starting point for negotiation is what I mean. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, no, not right now, or no, because I don't understand what you're asking, you know? Mm-hmm. So getting a no for me, like when you're emailing people asking for things, you have to be prepared for no, because that's easier yeah. to just immediately respond with a no and so for me that was like okay well at least it's a response (laughs) it's a response that's a starting point can can we revisit this can I make it easier for you to say yes and so that was a big you know yeah it's a big lesson as well I mean I I relate to that a lot so I started this podcast from Michigan Mm -hmm. from an apartment by myself and in 2013 before people really knew what podcasts were Mm -hmm. and same thing I started with people that I knew and then I just humbly started to send these emails being like you know cold emails I really admire you Mm -hmm. I really like your work I'm gonna make this as easy for you as I can you know can you do this and sometimes that meant boomeranging it to myself and following up a million times Mm -hmm. and not forgetting about it sometimes they said yes straight away and I was shocked (laughs) um and yeah and people ask all the time like how did you get this person or how did you get that person and it's like well you only it's kind of like social media you only see the yeses like Mm -hmm. I get a ton of no's too yeah Yeah. so anyway it's 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 so cool to hear the origin story from something else that I admire so when it comes to interviewing, you are such a fantastic interviewer and you're so natural at it from what I hear in the live episodes when Thank I actually you. get to hear you, but also in the in the writing and you're obviously such a great writer too. Do you feel like your experience of working with people helped you with that? And do you feel like you've evolved as an interviewer from when you started? Yes and yes. Everything I do now is derived from my training as a social worker and my experience doing social work. Um, I think there's, you know, it's all about people. That's what it comes down to. Both my social work um, career and what I do with TGD and even the work I'll be transitioning into next. And I think that for me, it's about creating trust so that people will be vulnerable and open up to you. And it's, it's also about getting curious and, you know, really listening and listening to what they're saying and how they're saying it and being willing to get off track a little bit if you think there's something interesting that you need to explore. Um, and just framing questions in a way that are open-ended and that encourage people to, you know, really respond and, and dive deep. So I, I think that my social work background prepared me for the work I do now, and I think my work with TGD is preparing me for what I'll do next. And it's funny because none of it has been planned, but in hindsight, it looks like I've yeah planned it very strategically. It's like that Steve Jobs quote, you can't connect the dots moving forward, only going back. Exactly. I'm excited to hear about all this. Okay, well, while we're on the thread of interviewing, because I'm the mm-hmm. one doing this interview, what advice do you have for 
for interviewing? If you had to boil it down. I think just get curious. Like really want to know what drives the other person or get get curious and and then be open because you never because of the dynamic, right? You, it's not there's not a formula. Like you yeah. never know what someone is going to say and I think another thing that's been helpful is use the silence. Like sometimes silence can be your best friend. Mm-hmm. Don't make it awkward, but when someone responds, you don't have to jump in right away. Yeah. Sometimes if you leave a little bit of silence, they might have an extra thought or an added thought that, that pops in that's related to what they were saying. That's amazing, amazing, amazing. But if you don't leave that space, it just kind of cuts off the thought for them. Leave the silence for a moment. <laughs> Practicing. <laughs> no, I really need to learn that lesson because I, I do this even not just when I'm doing these interviews, but in life. Like, I'll be driving in the car mm-hmm. with someone I don't know or whatever and, like, walking down the street or, like, having dinner. And I feel like it's my responsibility to mm-hmm. not make it awkward for that person mm-hmm. because I am so extroverted that mm-hmm. I'm, like, constantly trying to fill the spaces to the point where it's awkward for me. So that's just a good lesson in life, much less interviewing. Yeah. I think that it's hard for all of us. And that was something specifically, there were two things in my social work training, if you want to get Mm -hmm. technical. One was when I was trained, they took away our questions. They said, you have to interview, you have to practice interviewing someone and you can't ask any questions, but you have to gather information. So So they took away your prepared questions. We couldn't ask questions. We couldn't ask anything in the form of a question. We couldn't say what or how. It had to be like, tell me about... Blah, 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 right? So there are a lot of different ways to ask a question without asking a question. And Mm -hmm. I find in interviewing that sometimes a statement or a simple, hmm, that's interesting, can lead the person to say more about the subject than a follow-up question or than, um, you know, a list of questions that you just fire away really quickly um, one after the other. So that was something that it was so hard because I thought, how am I going to get this information I need without asking questions? Right. And then, um, and then the other was using the silence and learning to be okay in that awkward space, right? Yeah. We all feel awkward because we all feel the need to fill the silence, but it's amazing when you can practice being in practice, embracing that silence and yeah. you'll get amazing things back. I promise. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Have you had any guests, like, are there one or two that were especially exciting to you, or did you feel nervous interviewing? Yes. Um, the top one that comes to mind is the writer and author Cheryl Strayed, who I... So cool that you interviewed her. Yes, she's amazing. So I interviewed her. I think Wild had just come out and just been selected by Oprah as the book that would bring back Oprah's book club. Uh I'm not... I think it might have been a, a New York Times bestseller, but it was basically on the upswing. Um, mm-hmm. And I reached out to her publicist and somehow got a yes, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had just moved to New York. Um, I was on Skype, video chat. She was on video chat. She had a glass of wine. I had a glass of wine. And here I was, <gasps> one-on-one, spending that an hour so cool. interviewing this woman who just, you know, her... Her book meant so much to me as it does to so many people yeah. and it was it was really incredible and then I got to meet her when she was on book tour here in New York at 
Barnes and Noble in Union Square, I went and her and her publicist were there and I gave them both hugs and got to meet them and take a picture with her and she remembered me and it was it was the coolest. Mm. That's what I love so much about this is, you know, I secretly like mm-hmm. also jig is up, like I <laughs> think podcasting is the new networking and Mm -hmm. I secretly want to become friends with everyone that I interview Mm -hmm. because I think obviously I admire them and if we can you know sometimes more than others after I interview them Mm -hmm. usually I like everyone but you know there are some people that you just feel really comfortable with and you relate to Mm -hmm. and that's so cool that because because of this I'm pointing to the recorder because we're (laughs) recording I get to go and have these great conversations with people that like you may never have met Cheryl Mm -hmm. Strayed Mm -hmm. in real life and that's just such a cool story yeah do you did you prepare for that interview and how much do you prepare for the interviews and how do you prepare Mm -hmm. so preparation is pretty um I mean it gets the more you do it the easier and quicker it becomes but I mean it's just enough research to know the basics but not too much research that you know everything because I like to be surprised because I like to be in the moment and um and be spontaneous when I think it's warranted. So I prepare, you know, like maybe eight to ten questions related to risk, creativity, the path they've taken, aha moments, mentors, lessons they've learned, um, yeah. transitions they've made from one thing to another. Um, and But the questions are pretty loose. And then, um, you know, just in the moment kind of... I think the more you do anything, the more room you're able to leave for improvisation, which can be a really beautiful thing. I think it's important to be prepared, and I would never walk into an interview and not have questions prepared, but there's something really special in the moment when you can embrace what's being said and take it somewhere that you never planned or never Mm -hmm. thought it could go, and it's the same kind of transcendent feeling that I think a musician gets when they're playing something and all of a sudden the rest of the world fades away and they're just enveloped in this music or a writer gets when they hit flow and they're like ah finally right something is just it's just coming out without even trying and um, I've found that conversation is an art and there are moments especially I think during the live shows we do because there's a lot of energy from the audience so there's a nice exchange, but I think that there are several times where I've found myself in this flow of just like, oh, where am I? Like, this is amazing. This yeah. feels incredible. And you just feel the connection with the other person in a really tangible way. Yeah, it's like you're both instruments and you're mm-hmm. like a band playing mm-hmm. together. And I've had I've had moments like that. Like I've since I've been in New York, I've been doing more live podcasts at places, and it's my favorite thing mm-hmm. to do because you in in this setting right now I mean this we it's so much better doing it in person than how I used to do it before on Mm -hmm. the internet which was fine and was great it was kind of like I used to often say because I would wouldn't do Skype video I would just do the audio so I was like it was like confession like when you're (laughs) like like Catholic school Uh and I was like okay but you get really comfortable they're in their own house I'm in my own house and you know good conversations can happen Mm -hmm. in any different format but there's something about just us being together in person and then also having an audience and also having those added human beings in the room mm-hmm. that's like really magical and, yeah. and special. I I listened to this podcast, The Turnaround. Did you listen to that with mm-hmm. um, Jesse Thorne? It, he interviewed interviewers. So he did like Terry Ooh. Gross and you would love it. Yeah. I loved it. And Larry King and Katie Kirk and everyone in between. 
And the interesting thing he said was, or that I thought was so interesting, Larry King doesn't prepare at all for interviews. Like really? he's done it for like 80 some years <laughs> right. or something. And he, not 80, like 50 years. And he will not watch their movie, will not read their book, whatever. And Terry Gross like really goes through bullets, everything, has copious notes. And I definitely lean more on the, the Terry Gross side of things. Mm-hmm. And also I'm obsessed with her. But sometimes <laughs> I think that there is something to walking in, not listening, because I used to, and I still do this, listen to someone on every other podcast they've ever done, so I have, you know, I'm asking them fresh Mm -hmm. things, and I'm not making them repeat themselves, but I really like what you said, and and doing it more Larry King style of being surprised, Mm -hmm. and like, keeping open for that element, and I never really thought about it like that before. I think it just allows for this sense of discovery that you don't have, if you have the whole thing planned out, and you know where you want it to go and you're so focused, it doesn't leave a lot of room for discovery. And I yeah. think when you're discovering the your subject along with your audience, if it's a, you know, if you're doing it in front of an audience, that can be really magical because you're just taking the audience along with you and you're in the same place together. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's what he said in this interview. He was like, I want to be in the same place as someone watching mm-hmm. this in Michigan who's never heard of this person. And so I, I think it's a really... Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. So speaking of being surprised, have you been surprised or had any aha moments in these interviews that stick out to you, some that you still think about today? I can't recall anything. You know, I'm sure there are there are specific things people have said to me. Um, you know, there are certain quotes like from, from particular interviews that continue to resonate with me but I think that it's interesting because I think that wherever I am in my life and whatever the themes are in my life I somehow tend to pull those out of people oh, me too. yeah because it's what I'm curious about in the moment totally. and so sometimes it feels like I'm interviewing someone and they're just speaking to all my junk right like yeah. everything I'm going through I'm like how do you know and it's just I don't know I don't know what's happening I don't know how that works but I think that I get something different out of each interview because everyone brings such different experience and perspective. Um, But one of the things that has popped up over and over is that most of the people I talked to didn't have a strategic plan. They said yes to opportunities. They said yes to doing things that they didn't know how to do. And then they learned along the way. And a lot of them are still trying to figure it out. You know, even people who we view as really successful with a big platform, like they don't necessarily have a master plan. They're doing what feels good. They're saying yes to opportunities. And I think that that has been encouraging for me because I've always felt pressure to have it figured out from an early age. And now I'm realizing that we don't ever get to figure it all out and that's okay. And that's actually, I think a good thing because it leaves room for not knowing which has been another theme of my life this year but I think that leaving room for not knowing is great because something amazing could happen that you didn't plan but you've left room for it yeah oh okay so many things (laughs) let's go back to when you moved here from Mm -hmm. Michigan so you get to New York and you're starting this new project Mm -hmm. you talk to people about risk and uncertainty Mm -hmm. and change and so I would love to hear from you, you've recently had some, and then you did back then. Mm-hmm. So let's start with back then, and you're starting this new, 
pro- relatively new at the time project, mm-hmm. um, The Great Discontent, and you are moving from Michigan to New York where mm-hmm. you had just visited for the first time a couple of months prior. What was going through your mind then and what was your what was your plan and vision and what was that time period like for you? Hmm. <laughs> There's a lot. Where do I start? Well, I think that it felt like a risk, but it didn't because uh, my ex-husband and, and business partner, Ryan and I, had we'd wanted to move. We didn't know where. We didn't know it would be New York. And so I think that in our minds, we were already prepared for this transition, this physical transition from place to place. And New York felt really exciting. It didn't feel risky at all. It, it didn't feel like we were losing anything. It felt like we had everything to gain, right? Like friendships, opportunities, community, um, an amazing city with access to all kinds of resources and incredible food, right? Yeah. Um, so it was really a time, a period of discovery and just excitement and everything felt new. Um, and I think that personally, it probably was a risk for me um, just in that I didn't really know who I was anymore because I had been doing social work full time and I had worked at the same nonprofit for 12 years. And so I quit that job when I moved to New York and chose not to do social work in New York because the licensing is different. You know, I don't know the community and I had wanted to do something creative anyway. Um, but I felt like I was leaving family. You know, I was leaving my actual family and I was leaving this Is all your family, family in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you close with them? I'm pretty close. Yeah. yeah, with some. Not, you know, there's a lot of extended family and cousins and people who've moved or don't yeah. live nearby. But, I, you know, I left my hometown yeah. at age 30 to move to New York. And you never know how things are going to turn out. And so yeah. I guess in hindsight, maybe it was more of a risk than I thought, but I was really excited about it. And, that's, and you're that's doing how it with it. someone else mm-hmm. and you were doing it with your husband. So, yeah. you know, having someone else that you are obviously mm-hmm. super close with probably, yep. even though it is a big risk, it doesn't feel like it as much, I yeah. would assume. No, it felt like we had built in support in yeah. one another. And, you know, we were working. And the other thing is that he had taken a job, a full-time job, um, here in New York and so it wasn't you know TGD was a side project still and so there wasn't we were we were starting to partner with sponsors and starting to bring in money through it but it wasn't the thing that was paying our bills and so I was doing freelance I transitioned into doing some freelance copywriting and then growing TGD while he was focusing on full-time work and then also doing TGD and so yeah together we pooled our resources and our talent and I think that having I think that I don't know if I would have moved to New York by myself. I think that, you know, there are, there are a lot of gifts that I'll take from my marriage, and I think that New York was one of them. Mm-hmm. I, TGD was definitely one of them. And I don't know if I would have done either of those things without him. Not that I'm not capable, but I think that together there was yeah. this synergy that we didn't have um, as individuals, and we were able to create something really, really magical yeah. and make this move that was um, really wonderful for both of us. And so maybe... Because we didn't do it alone, it didn't seem like as much of a risk. Yeah. It doesn't mean it was easy. New York yeah. is a hard place to move, and there are a lot of things that are very, very different about living here, um, especially coming from the Midwest, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. So you're building TGD, mm-hmm. and you when do you and your husband make this your full-time mm-hmm. thing and not a, not a side project? And... Was that scary and walk us through kind of that up to 
to where it is now. Yeah. So that's oh gosh, where I need a I need a, a timeline. I need, yeah. I need a chart here because I, I always forget. I, I should have refreshed my memory. You know, it's it's um it gets a little muddy sometimes looking back at the timeline. But I think it was um February 2014. We so we moved to New York on April Fool's Day in 2012, mm-hmm. April 1st, and then. February 2014, we launched a Kickstarter, our first Kickstarter, to make our first print issue. And it was a really large, 378 pages or 372 pages and um, like kind of double issue. And that was when we decided to take the leap because it was going to be so much work to do the print magazine. And we knew we couldn't focus on day jobs and freelance work and TGD. And so... What happened was the Kickstarter just paid for the magazine, but we changed our partnership model so that companies had the opportunity to underwrite larger portions of TGD. So they became yearly partners or quarterly partners versus sponsoring individual interviews. And so with the support of companies who believed in us and wanted to partner with us to underwrite our content, that helped mm-hmm. you know, pay bills. Um, is still a stretch because pub, you know pub, media and publishing is hard, and, but um, but the, yeah that allowed us to focus on TGD in a more full time capacity and we've both taken on you know other work from time to time um, since then because publishing ebbs and flows and it's up and down but um, that I would say yeah February 2014 so the first print issue you know was completed and it came out in the spring so I think it was May. And then we went on to do some other print issues. Um, and then in 20, you know, so that was 2014. And then in 2016, we said, you know, I think we need to kind of explore different mediums because the spirit of TGD is the same, but I think that the, the package or the mediums that contain that spirit can change, can change and should change. And so um, we really wanted to do live events here in the city and we were interested in podcasting and the live events were the thing that we kind of landed on and we decided to do uh, monthly events, uh, live interviews in front of an audience and we partnered with Wife Hotel in Williamsburg to host the live events at their screening room and bar which is a fabulous, intimate, cozy space. I'm and on the wait list for Wednesday. Oh, so. I'll get you in. Okay. <laughs> we um, we did 12 live shows in 2016, which so was cool. so many. I don't know. We're, we're just very ambitious and decided, you know, oh, fine, we'll do 12. There's 12, 12 months in the year. We'll do 12. Um, and we chose to record the audio from the live events and publish it on our podcast because we really wanted a way for people who couldn't attend or who aren't in New York to have access to, to that content as well. And then um, this year, 2017, we're doing eight live shows. So we, you know, pared it down a little bit. But eight is still quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. They're so good. We haven't actually defined TGD. Mm-hmm. And I could do it in the intro, but I think it'd be cooler if, <laughs> if you did it. So maybe tell about, you know, what when you meet someone in an elevator, if mm-hmm. you have to tell them about it, what you say, and then also kind of the vision for where you think it's going. Okay, so, well, you know, this is interesting because my path this year, I'm, I'm in transition this year, and so I'm actually going to be less involved next year. I'll be transitioning out. So I'm not really guiding the vision for where it goes next year, but I can say that 
you know, just my overall elevator pitch is that The Great Discontent is a print and online magazine featuring interviews with artists, makers, and risk takers. It's kind of an easy way to describe it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a co-founder and I'll always be a co-founder and this, is, this will always be a very special project to me. So um, I won't be involved next year in the same capacity, but I, I think that, you know, Ryan and I have talked a lot about this, this vision that we have for TGD. I think that even as TGD evolves and the community grows, you know, the vision is always the same, which is to really um, challenge and inspire our readers to embrace their own great discontent and allow that to pull them forward rather than paralyzing them or causing them to get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that feel like for you being starting this and Mm -hmm. you know also I want to know what was working with your partner like Mm -hmm. having your lives so intertwined and and now being on your own and Mm -hmm. doing something new how does that feel yeah where should should I just start with starting all of it (laughs) yeah just jump right in let it out yeah Yeah, so this year you know this year has been really unexpected and um so so in January um my ex-husband and business partner um, separated and, you know, were divorced. And um, that was not, it was not something I expected. Um, But it has been something that has opened up space in my life for a lot of different things that that are also unexpected, but really great. And so um, I think that, you know, very early on, it was this conversation of, okay, we need to separate business from personal for sure, which we were really horrible at before because it's so challenging to work with your partner and everyone wants it, but no one realizes how challenging it actually is yeah. until you do it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in January, you know, it was like this, we began this process of untangling our lives that had been so woven together in so many ways. And part of that was talking about the business. And I think that we both want the same thing for the business and we want it to continue and we want the legacy to remain and so it was how do we do that in a way that feels good and feels right to us and for the brand um and so I stayed on for the first six months of the year and then I hired a managing editor Brandy who is based in Portland and she's incredible and she's already a part of the design community and so and she's an incredible writer and she just um you know, jumped, jumped aboard so quickly and is, is leading the editorial, um, charge now. So, and I'm, I'm working, you know, with TGD as a, in a contractor capacity and, um, hosting the live shows through the, through the remainder of the year and, you know, doing some things here and there, but not really day to day. And so I've already kind of begun my transition out, which will be complete at the end of the year. And that was a hard decision for me because, you know, it was something that Ryan and I created together that was such an expression of us as a partnership and as a couple. And it felt really special because of that. Um, And, you know, when we, you know, started the divorce process and we're talking about what does, what will business look like now? I was torn between, do I stay? Do I take on the business? Do I leave? And what does that mean for me? And I, I think, you know, I was talking to a mentor and I said, I don't know. I have good days and I have bad days. And I keep going back and forth. And he said, well, what do you know to be true on the good days? And I said, well, 
On the good days, what I know to be true is that I think there are some things in me that haven't been expressed yet that need to be. And I think that while working in this partnership was great and I learned so much about myself and I grew in many, many ways, I think I need to do my own thing. And I think I need to be brave enough to step out on my own and take my own risk like I've talked to so many people about doing. And so that was a scary choice for me to make. But once I made it, it was there was no looking back. And then we started to plan, okay, what's the what's the transition plan and what does the timing look like and what do we need to put in place to make sure things are smooth and um, that TGD continues to operate, you know, as usual. And we did all of that and, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of, of yeah. what we've done. And so, yeah. I mean, it's not easy. Um, it's not easy to separate business and personal, mm-hmm. but I think that we're both so invested in, this brand that we've created and not just a brand I say brand because it is uh, but this community you know and this work that we've done over the years and we want to see it continue and yeah. so I think you know that's the the common thread yeah wow it's I mean thanks for sharing yeah all of that. course so is he staying on mm-hmm. and that will still be his full-time project yeah exactly well he's also doing other work mm-hmm. um but TGD will be you know, he'll stay on TGD and um, work with our managing editor. So he'll be editor-in-chief, which I'm already, you know, editor-at-large, um, kind of. Yeah. So your main role was mm-hmm. the interviews then. Yes. And so now can you tell us about what's next and what you're yeah, thinking about? Yeah, I can. So, um, Exclusive. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it. Heard it here first. <laughs> um, the Let It Out podcast exclusive. <laughs> So I, uh, I I spent the first like six to eight months of this year just freaking out, going, how am I going to make money? Am I going to have to leave New York? Um, I thought a lot about, will I go work for someone else? Will I work for myself? And um, I can work for someone else if I need to, but I just don't think that I'm wired that way, you know, long term. I think that it's, I need to be someone who can steer the ship and who can cast the vision and really take the lead. It's very challenging for me yeah. to um, be an employee. <laughs> Plus for how long? Five mm-hmm. years or mm-hmm. 10 years you've been essentially working for yourself yeah. or you've been an yeah, about, yeah, about six years. Yeah. So, um, But I have this entrepreneurial spirit where I'm like, yeah, it's hard. It's hard yeah. for me to give up a lot of control and, to, to work for someone else. Um, so I, I spent earlier this year, you know, I was working on some freelance projects, just doing content strategy and paying the bills. And that was great. And I just kept thinking, Oh my gosh, time's running out. I have to figure my shit out. Like I'm 36 now. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I just got divorced. I'm living with a roommate for the first time in my life. She's amazing by the way. Amazing apartment. Found her on Craigslist. The apartment's amazing. But I'm like, I'm 36, right? What am I doing? Like, I should have my shit together and have a plan. Um, And I remembered, you know, this is something that Elle Luna said in her interview, which uh, Ryan actually interviewed her, and it's, it's one of my favorite interviews on TGD. But she said that, you know, the longer we can hang out in that not knowing and in that kind of liminal space, the better, because we prolong 
the decision making process, but but sometimes we get better ideas or, or things come to us that's like, ooh, this is even better, mm. right? And so I was like, I'm gonna hang out in this space for as long as I can pay my bills and just do some freelance work. And what happened was this theme started to pop up where I was learning so much about myself and I was talking to friends and people I would meet. And people would tell me things like, you're a great listener. You ask really provoking questions. Um, you're really helpful. And then this theme of coaching came up and people kept saying, you should check it out. And I was like, coaching? I have no idea what that even is, right? And so I started, I had it on a to-do list probably for months, like look up life coaching, see what it's all about, see what it takes to be a life coach. And I didn't do it, didn't do it. And then, um, and then I was talking to a friend who said, oh, hey, I just started seeing a life coach recently. And I was like, okay, universe. And then he told me that he was exploring what was next for him in his career, but his life coach wasn't familiar with the creative community. And so the suggestions or what they were trying to explore just wasn't as helpful, right? Because the coach didn't understand the space that he was working in. And I thought, I know that space. Yeah. I just spent six years interviewing nearly 300 creatives about their lives and their work. And I know that space maybe more than most. Yeah. And I'm trained as a social worker. So I put two and two together and I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. And I went online and within a week I was signed up for a life coach certification course, which it's like a, it's a fast track accelerated program. And I, I just went to Atlanta last week and completed the face-to-face training. Cool. And I have some more, um, phone, phone call trainings and then some assignments to complete and, before I can apply for graduation. And then I have to work toward a certification, which means I have to get, I think, 100 hours of coaching before I can apply for a certification. But um, that is what's next for me. I'm going to do coaching That's for amazing. creatives. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm excited because it's um, it's like tapping into my social work roots in a new way and combining what I've done in social work yes. and what I've done with TGD. And, and what I'm really – what I'm most excited about, I think, is that – um, inspiration is important and it's wonderful to feel inspired, but I'm really excited about coaching because coaching is focused on the present and the future and it's very actionable. If you're not helping your coachee take action, then it's not coaching. Yeah. So I'm really excited to help people take action in their lives and see results and see change. And um, Very yeah. cool. I especially like the piece about what your friend said about not understanding the community because I've been interviewing a lot of coaches and people for in that space kind of for years and and then I diversified more into okay creative people and just and people in general comedians and entrepreneurs and writers and actors and also life coaches and health coaches and wellnessy people and you know, like a really diverse group but I think a lot of times there's such a disconnect and so I think Blending those worlds together is so needed and exciting. And I've worked with a lot of coaches and having them actually this person who's who's like who is a coach and is a mentor in my life, I was talking with them yesterday and she just so didn't understand the space. Mm-hmm. So it was she was really smart and giving really good advice and part of it was generational and part of it is just that she just doesn't understand where it is that I want to go Mm -hmm. and what my career, this career path is so unique Mm -hmm. because it didn't exist. What I'm trying to do 
didn't exist five years ago, 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. And I don't know what it's going to be in the future. So I think that brings another level of uncertainty that, you know, people have different thresholds for uncertainty and you mm-hmm. understand that so well through all of the interviews that you've done. So it's just such a good job. So perfect. <laughs> well, I didn't plan it, but I'll take a little credit. It's like you did. Yeah. It's like I did. Yeah. That's yeah. really, uh, it's really cool. There's, I, do you know the Handel group? Um, I don't. They're like a group of, of life coaches. Okay. And I had Lauren Zander, who is the founder on, on the, her book just came out. And I just had her on the podcast last week. And she defined for me the difference between therapy and coaching mm-hmm. and how coaching is action oriented. Mm-hmm. And so I think that with creative specifically, going back to your influence of the war of art, it's so perfect about mm-hmm. helping people through the procrastination and through, you know, these creative blocks that we have. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it just, yeah, it, it couldn't be more perfect And mm-hmm. that. What you were saying before about how these interviews always end up being what you need in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like I do the same thing. And a question <laughs> I've been asking on the podcast the last couple months has been all about feeling like a master of none. Mm-hmm. Like I've been doing a lot of things, but none of them that well or just and I think that's kind of the life of a creative person and feeling like a freelancer and and somebody once said on the podcast to me that oh it's a sign of being a highly creative person if you have multiple passions and I was like okay that's fine (laughs) but to really get down to it like what is your advice maybe this is like your first coaching question or Mm -hmm. how do you get over feeling like a master of none and and not use that to procrastinate like Mm -hmm. have you ever seen those before sunset movies and with julie definitely i have but it's been a long time well there's this line in there where she says i have want to do so much that i end up doing nothing at all Mm -hmm. like how do you that's familiar focus (laughs) yeah well if i'm purely coaching i wouldn't give advice to you i would ask you well what have you tried yeah and you might answer me, but since it's the podcast and you're okay. actually asking me for advice and I'm not coaching you. Um, so I, I think that it's all about giving yourself permission and like, you don't have to, you don't have to have just one thing and you don't have to be a master. And I think, um, it's subjective and I think everyone has to define for themselves. What does mastery mean? Do I want it? I think that, Uh, grit and tenacity are more important than mastery because Mm -hmm. I think that if you can try something or try a few things and stick with them long enough and you have the grit and tenacity to execute over and over again you're going to develop mastery anyway and you're probably going to develop more passion for the thing I think that a lot of times we don't know what our passion is because we don't try things we have a fantasy in our mind and we think that we might be passionate about this or that, but you don't know until you try it. You might hate it, or you might love it, or you might feel ambivalent and doing it over time. I didn't know interviewing was a passion. I did it as a social worker, but it was in a much different context, and often it was in a crisis context, and so it was not always pleasant, but it was my job, and I was good at it. But I didn't know that interviewing creatives would be this thing that I would do for six years, right? And I started out doing it, and I... I thought, I like this, and the more I did it, the more passionate I became about interviewing people and uncovering their lives and really illuminating the path that they've taken, and that became exciting for me. 
And, but it wasn't because it was glamorous or, you know, exciting all the time. It was a lot of work and it took a lot of grit and tenacity to say, I'm going to sit down and transcribe this interview and then I'm going to edit it and then I'm going to, you know, over and over and over again, right? Like the hanging out with the cool people you want to interview, that's great. But that's, right. that's an hour of the work yes. at most. Yeah. And then there's like days of work that's, that's just yeah. you alone doing the hard stuff. And so I think that, I think that, um, have more than one passion, be curious, follow your curiosity because it's going to change and that's okay. Don't beat yourself up if you try something and then you leave it because you're not interested anymore or your curiosity changes. So I think this idea of passion is like, follow your curiosity. It might develop into a passion as you employ grit and tenacity, but don't be discouraged because you don't have a passion because many of us don't start out calling the thing we do we do a passion we start yeah. out just by accident or curiosity yeah. and then we can look back and we can put it in neat and tidy boxes and say oh it was always a passion but I don't right. think that's true yeah oh that's such a good point <laughs> did you read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic I didn't I feel like you'd like it okay I, like I will it's that. been on my list yeah I think you'd like it she kind of talks about this. I actually like the way you articulated it better. But, oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so with with that and, and with everything and, and all the change and transition, mm-hmm. I loved what you mentioned in that interview about lingering in the space between. Mm-hmm. And I had... You would actually really like this this one, this person. Nan, do you know Nancy Levin? She, the name sounds familiar. Yeah, she wrote this book. It's kind of It's about her divorce. And she has this quote where she says, um, ooh, what is it? <laughs> of course, when I try mm-hmm. to do it. Well, it's basically like love the space between no longer and not yet mm-hmm. or something like that. And it made me think of that. So what has this period of transition taught you mm-hmm. and how what have been some of your daily or weekly self-care mm-hmm. routines or anything that's helped you in an uncertain period? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, self-care, you know, I don't have a side project this year. I am my own side project. <laughs> um, self-care has been my number one priority, and what that's meant for me is slowing down when it comes to work, which I used to work very, very long days, way longer than necessary because I felt like I had to, and this year I'm still doing quite quite a bit of work um but I've slowed way down you know I'm like I've learned to listen to my body and to listen to my mind and emotions and if I'm having a day you know there's less of that now but early on um there you know there there were weeks that I just couldn't work like when um my then husband and I for you know when we first separated when we were initiating the divorce process there was a period of time where I said you know I just can't I have to take care of myself. I have to go back to Michigan and be with family and be with people who ground me and who've known me my whole life and um, let them love on me. And and so I did that. And to me, it was like, you know what? My my own mental health and like my health comes first. And for so long, I had put myself last. And so it felt really good to do that. And then you know, and then I got to the place where I was like, okay, I can do work now, but I'm not going to be working all night and all weekend, right? I'm going to put some limits on it. And 
I think I'm back to the place now of work where it's like there are there are nights where I need to work late, right? Or there's like a weekend where I need to do something, and that's okay. But it, it happens way less. And the thing is, I'm I'm way happier. I'm way more productive. I have way more time to care for myself, and I have way more time to connect with people. And I think that you know, going back to the whole vulnerability thing, um, the the most important thing I've done for myself this year is choose to be vulnerable because when you when you reveal who you really are and what you're really going through people respond and they say me too and those words are really powerful and that's that has really that has deepened so many of my friendships that I thought were you know we're just acquaintances or we're friends but we don't really talk about what's going on in our lives and now yeah. I have these amazing friendships where we're actually talking mm. about real things and I think just that connection for me has been really profound and I think, you know, we grow through connection and I've had a lot of connection this year and a lot of growth this year. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Were you fearful with, I mean, it's kind of a redundant question, like I'm, <laughs> I'm sure, of course, but how did you, I guess a better way to frame this would be, how did you handle the fear of obviously you were very publicly Mm -hmm. working and married to Mm -hmm. your partner and you had started something together and you just probably you know were in this community and knew Mm -hmm. people would have a lot of questions and probably for a while waited to share until you were ready how was that experience for you of we kind of talked about Mm -hmm. it cryptically before before we like revealed what it was but how did you handle that did you consider leaving New York you said you went back to Michigan for a while how did you handle and and both of you together how you'd share that publicly and did you have fear around it um yeah I mean of course I was afraid because we we had this very public project together we had a very public relationship um I think a lot of people looked up to us as you have the you have an amazing relationship because you've created this awesome thing together and you know but there's always what what things appear to be and what they are. And I think that we both felt pressure to keep up appearances. Um, but, you know, early on it was, um, you know, I can't speak for him, but I can say that I knew that I had to prioritize my own self-care and I knew that whatever I needed and whatever felt good was what I had to do. And part of that was allowing space, giving myself space to um, process. And that... You know, I just um, I just shared publicly on social media with my online community in August. You know, I shared a post, and um, so that's like half the year. And um, a lot of friends, obviously, like friends and family, knew before that because I had conversations with them on the phone or in real life. And um, I would, you know, there was a period of time where I just knew I couldn't go to events because I. I wasn't able to talk about it yet and I knew people would ask because everywhere either of us would go we would get asked about each other because we were such a public partnership and um and so my self-care was just not it was going out but with friends to safe spaces and not big industry events right um but then it reached a point where I was like I'm ready and um I just spoke at the AIJ conference which I curated this year and it was this it was October, early October. And, you know, I shared, 
publicly from the stage about vulnerability and I mentioned my divorce and not all the details of course but I talked about um, vulnerability and empathy and how those things have really carried me this year and so um, I think that you know for me it's part of my story but it took me a little while to process like what does that narrative sound like and what does it mean for me and so yeah I gave myself a lot of space it was hard but um, friends and family and my community has been really supportive and I think that um, you know people want to show up for you and if you give them an opportunity to you will and then you also find out like who really does want to yeah. show up for you and who just doesn't want to or can't for yeah. whatever reason and that's okay too so yeah. um, I don't know if I answered your question no, you but didn't. it was it was hard it was really hard and I think that it felt um, it felt a little disingenuous to not share about the divorce early on but I just knew that it wasn't the right time and I think that you know some advice I was given I've been given a lot of advice this year some of it's great some of it not so great and um but some advice I got that was really great was like you know this is your story and you get to choose who you share it with what you say and when you share it and you don't owe anybody anything and I think that was really important for me to hear because I've yeah. my whole life I've always felt like I owe people things or I have to please people or, yeah. um, you know, I felt the pressure and weight of the expectations of others. And so this year, you know, I, I set that all aside because I had to, because I had yeah. to take care of myself. And, um, yeah, it's been amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's really inspiring. I'm, like, proud of you. And <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It had to be really, really hard. And to see how much you're thriving and how good you are mm. it's just a testament to your self-care and your self-awareness mm. and it's yeah it's really inspiring something I'm curious about is so you worked with your partner mm -hmm. and you guys were married mm -hmm. and like you said that can be really idealistic and something that I've wanted in periods mm -hmm. of my life but then also been apprehensive for <laughs> what would you say to people wanting that or like what ad advice would you mm -hmm. have or do you feel like that is a would you do that again yeah I've thought a lot about this I don't know if I would do it again because I, I feel like for me personally I feel like um I feel like it's easy for me to hide in a partnership mm -hmm. and to not really contribute what I need to because I don't have to be vulnerable because I can hide in this thing that's bigger than me mm. and I feel like I have some things to share with the world that are coming just from me as an individual. Um, so yeah. I need to do those things. Yeah. Um, I'm not closed to the idea of a, of a project with a partner or a friend even. Um, but in this season, it's, I think it's, um, you know, it's been the year of Tina for me and I think it will continue to be in 2018, um, as I explore my path. But I think that, you know, working with your partner can be really beautiful. And, just because Ryan and I aren't together anymore doesn't negate any of the work we did with TGD. It doesn't make it any less special. Um, it was a really beautiful project that resonated and continues to resonate with so many people. And it will always be special to me. And I think that, um, you know, I think it's just really, really hard to work with your partner. And I think that if you want it, you should go for it. I do think, one, you know, one of the things that, um, is is most challenging or was most challenging for me was really just having these boundaries between work and life because it's you know if you think of them as separate buckets it's really easy 
because you're so excited about the work and you're so driven and ambitious and committed to it that it's so easy to put all of your energy and resources into the work bucket yeah. and ignore the personal bucket. And because they're all they're all one in this, they feel like they're one of this one in the same because you're living together and working together. It feels like investing into the work is investing into your personal relationship, but they're mm. not the same. And so they're really like these two separate buckets that you have to oh, wow. fill. And I think that I could have been better about that. Um, but you know, I I don't I'm not jaded about it. Like I think that there are some really beautiful partnerships that that have lasted a lifetime and created this legacy of work. I think there are some partnerships that have lasted for a shorter period of time, but also created some really yeah. stunning work. And I think that um, you know nothing lasts forever. And so while it lasts, like enjoy it, be in it, and if and when it ends, like take the gifts and move on. Mm, well said. Oh, that was so good. Okay, questions that I that I ask everyone that okay. I want to make sure we get to. So we talk a lot about body image on this podcast, mm-hmm. and specifically with women, but I think all, all people deal with it. So being a public person mm-hmm. and just a woman in the world, mm-hmm. have you ever struggled with body image? And how the way I usually frame this question is when you're having a, if you do, and mm-hmm. when we're having a bad body image, whether it's with our you know, the way that we look just generally or with like our, our size, how do you take that moment and shift it so it doesn't become a bad body image day or week? How do you move past negative thoughts about yourself basically? That's interesting. I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. I think for me, um, one of the things I always struggled with is the fact that I'm so tall and um, because I'm from the Midwest and, you know, in New York, there are so many tall women and we all wear heels. And so it doesn't matter. Right. But um, even when I leave New York now and travel, um, mostly men usually will make remarks to me like, how tall are you? And, really? and it's really it's offensive. It's like, hey, you know, how tall are you? Or, well, I'm not asking you what you weigh. Just like right. leave it alone. Right. Um, and so I think I find that offensive. Um, so I've always been conscious of how tall I am. But I think that especially in this past year, I've just embraced it. I think for me, it's like, I'm, I go to the gym, I try to eat healthy and it's like, I do what I can do. And otherwise I just try to let it go. Yeah. Oh, well said. And you're beautiful (laughs) in person and on the internet. We, we also talk about feminism Mm -hmm. and just being a, a woman in the world. So how do you define feminism for yourself and how do you act your feminism in your life day to day Mm. and you know if you've ever experienced sexism like anything kind of in this like everyone like every woman yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think that oh gosh how would I I'm gonna like I don't want to get it wrong right there's so many things um so many different yeah it's um, okay take your time approaches or definitions I should reframe this question as your definition of feminism in this moment because it can always change. Yeah. Okay. So my definition of feminism, I mean, I really, I think that it's all about embracing who you are as a woman and not trying to live up to others' expectations, Mm -hmm. but to ask yourself, like, who am I and who do I want to be? And I think it's about helping other women do the same, right? Like, you can be anyone you want to be and you can do anything you want to do and you know expectations of like gender roles or you know how you should be in the workplace or how you should dress or how you should respond in certain situations i think that 
you know, you should just push all that off the table. And I know that's easier said than done. Um, but yeah, I think it's just being who you want to be and putting yourself out into the world however you want to do that. Yeah. Um, and then and then empowering other women to do that. Like I think that um, one of the one of the um, important things to to say in this is that. I think there's enough room for everyone to succeed and for everyone to rise together. And I, th- and I think that true feminism will do that. Mm, it's yeah, not about excluding anyone. Yeah, I love that. Okay, how about your relationship with social media, your phone, technology in general? I think that's such an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. So how do you handle that or have a healthy relationship with being connected? Well, I'm still trying to figure that out, but one of the things I've done a lot this year is put my phone on Do Not Disturb and also use the Do Not Disturb setting on my computer when I'm doing focused work. Um, I get curious if sometimes I like break that and I'll check and be like, oh, did anyone text me or you know, what's up with my email? But I try, I try not to be looking at my phone all the time and it's, it's hard. It's really hard, but Part of self-care for me this year has been allowing myself to be a little less connected to my devices. Um, I also, like earlier this year in the spring, I was out and I, I lost my phone and wallet, keys, everything. And I didn't have a phone for three days. And I, um, oh, yeah. it w- at first I had some anxiety, but then it was like, oh, this is actually kind of amazing. Um, and then I also went to a camp in a camp for adults in California in May and I, I spoke around the campfire it was awesome and we had to turn our phones in when we got there and it was like again it was like three or four days and same thing at first you you think you're feeling your phone a text on your phone that's in your pocket but it's not in your pocket because you don't have it and then you relax a little bit and you learn to actually be present and you can't hide behind your screen really right cool. you can't be out just on your phone, like, yeah. don't bother me, right? That's, like, a social barrier that we put up. Like, don't bother me yeah. on my phone. Headphones. Exactly. And so I had to I had to be present in my life. And it was challenging. Yeah, and it's uncomfortable. a little awkward, yeah. 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 But it was good. Uh, that's so inspiring. But the piece about losing your phone in New York, I think you have to have lived here for longer than a couple of months because that terrified <laughs> me of, like, I would have no idea how to get home. I know. Like, I don't know what- do you know what I did? This is hilarious and so embarrassing, but I had some appointments during that time that I had to take. I literally printed out Google Maps. Oh my gosh. Yep. That's a, I don't I don't <laughs> think I would have been able to move to New York before no. cell phones. No. Because I don't I'm so bad with directions yeah. that I just don't I don't know how people did it. It's, it's just so inspiring. much to learn. They're, yeah. 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 Wow. Okay, so speaking of New York. What, what is your favorite part of living here and your least favorite part of living here? Okay, least favorite part, I can say very quickly, just the access to nature. Because I'm from Michigan, mm-hmm. I was used... And by the water. Yeah, and by the water, I was used to be able to... Like, I could drive 10 minutes to the lake, be there on this gorgeous lake all alone, right? And yeah. just think. And I miss that. Um, I think my favorite part here is just the people. Like, the people and then also... Um, you never know what's going to happen when you leave your apartment in the morning. And so this um, sense of like play and discovery and exploration and surprise, like you don't, you never know. And you could have, you could have the worst day or the best day. Yeah. And you just have to accept that either could happen. Yeah. That's so amazing. Said that on my podcast, he was like, your best days in New York are like euphorically mm-hmm. awesome, yes. and your worst days are like horribly terrible. Yes. And it's a town of extremes, which <laughs> I found is. to be true. <laughs> yeah. What about 
you're you're Midwestern, Mm -hmm. I'm Midwestern. Do you think of that as a defining characteristic in you? And do you see how that contributes to how you carry yourself living in New York now? Mm. Yes. Well, I have a bit of a Midwestern accent when I say certain things, and so people will ask where I'm from. I don't notice Um, it, but... I know, but that's that's because we probably have the same one. I don't know. (laughs) Um, I do have a friend who's from Port Huron who people always ask if she's from Canada because you guys are so close. Yes, because we... I grew up around Canadian... Like, I grew up going to Canada when you only had to have your birth certificate or an oh, ID. Right, like, you didn't right. have to have... Passport. It felt like another state. It didn't feel like another country. And so I think some of that Canadian dialect, for sure, has influenced me. Yeah. Um, and I just can't get rid of it. And I'm like, well, if you don't like it, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I don't really think of myself as a Midwesterner, although I am. And I'm sure that maybe I, maybe I'm, I have, like... Maybe I exude warmth and empathy. I don't know. Um, people do ask me for directions on the street sometimes. Maybe I look approachable. Yeah. But I definitely try. I feel very cozy here in your place Yeah. Right now. <laughs> Thank you. I, I try. You know, New York is like, I think it can make you hard and it can toughen you up a little bit. And I try I try to stay soft. Mm. Not soft enough. You know, not not like as a pushover. But, yeah. you know, I try to, to stay, stay soft because I just, I don't want to be hard. Yeah. I don't want to um, be rough around the edges and just grumpy and like, yeah. you know? Yeah, I agree. And I want to stay that way as well. So I had this book come out in 2016 about journaling. Mm-hmm. I brought you a copy. So I always like to ask people about their relationship to writing and processing through writing. And I know you write as mm-hmm. part of your work, but has journaling ever been something that you've done or helped you process things? Yes. Um this is interesting. I was talking to my therapist recently. I I journaled consistently from the time I was a little girl up until about 2013, and then mm-hmm. I stopped. And then a week before my ex and I separated, I started journaling again, which wow. is so interesting. It was like my body intuitively knew, yeah. girl, you better start journaling because something's coming. Um, and so for me, I think those years when I wasn't journaling, I think there were some things I didn't want to deal with or process, right? And so yeah. I knew that if I was journaling, I would have to process. Um, so this year, I've posted a couple shots on my Instagram of my journals, but um, I have gone through so many journals, and I have written, you know, I write I write every two to four days, but usually more like every other day, if not every day, because I just have had so much to process. So it's been journaling and calling girlfriends are my two my two go-tos. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny that you avoided it for that long. So mm-hmm. I say in the book that there are people who are SOS journalers mm-hmm. and people who are maintenance journalers. So I think we become SOS journalers when we don't do the, the mm-hmm. maintenance journaling of mm-hmm. like, there's something I need to process there, but I'm just going to like push that down yep. in my pocket and I'll deal with that later. And I do that too all yeah. the time. It's like when I journal, you really have to put the mirror up in your face yeah, and you do. examine your shit and like yep. move through it. And if you just pretend like it's not there, it's a lot more comfortable. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's, that's really cool. What is something that you're most proud of in your career? Mm. The banging outside. <laughs> it's like a drum roll. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm... You know, I don't want to say a particular achievement. I, I think that I'm most proud of my 
willingness to evolve and to try new things. Yeah. Um, which I'm, I've done before, going from social work to TGD, and I'm doing that now, going from TGD to coaching. And so, I mean, it takes a lot for me. I, you know, I like to be in control and, like, have everything planned out, but, you know, you can't because <laughs> yeah. life is not controllable. So, um, yeah, I think I'm most proud of just my willingness to embrace this risk and see what happens. Do you think you'll still do interviews in some capacity once you're coaching? I want to. Um, I'm not sure what format it will take. Yeah. And I'm not putting pressure on it right now, so yeah. we'll see. Cool. I was just curious. Okay, something I always ask people that I love, it kind of gives us a, a little window into their lives, is about morning and evening mm-hmm. routines. So what are some morning routines that you have? Maybe the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning and the last few things you do before you go to sleep to shut down and wind down at the end of the day? Um, so when I get up in the morning, well, usually I hit snooze a couple times. Um, Me too. And then I will get up and come out here to the kitchen, heat up some hot water in my electric beautiful kettle. Beautiful kitchen, exclusive. <laughs> it is beautiful. Tina has the most amazing kitchen. We're looking at blue tile, <laughs> big cabinets. Blue subway tile, it's gorgeous. Um, I come out and make matcha tea, grab some breakfast, go to my desk, um, and then I usually remember that I forgot to feed my cat because he gets food every morning. He'll remind me if I forget, so I'll go like take care of all of his, you know, litter box, food, water, so he's set for the day, and then and then I'll get to work. And then in the evening, um, if I'm looking at screens a lot in the evening right before bed, I just can't sleep. I think it does something to my brain. Um, so I try to read a book or journal. Um, sometimes I'll talk to a girlfriend or a mentor. Um, I, have a lot, I feel like a lot of my friends are night owls like me. So sometimes we'll have phone calls scheduled for like, you know, 9, 10. I've even had calls at 11 before. Mm-hmm. So it might be like a call before bed. And then I'm usually in bed around midnight, um, sometimes later. But I'm trying, 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 trying to say midnight at the latest because... Um, just trying to be more routine about yeah. things. When do you wake up? Oh my gosh, it's all over the place. But I love to sleep in. You know, um, someone I really respect, which I won't name names, um, and is very successful, told me that they really like to sleep in. And I was like, yes, you can be successful and sleep in. Yeah. Um, and so I do love to sleep in. Like if it's a weekend, I mean, honestly, like I could be in bed till 10 or 11. Yeah. No doubt. But that's also like I probably stayed up till 2 or 3 because I'm a night owl. Um but if it's like weekday, depending on appointments or things, you know, like eight or nine, um, that's why I work for myself. Yeah. Do you typically work for, I mean, your place is beautiful, mm-hmm. I would. Do you work from here? Do you go, like going to coffee shops or co-working spaces? What's your kind of routine? I work from home. I just prefer it. I don't like, yeah. by the time I put the energy and effort into commuting, I feel like I've wasted a lot of the momentum that I would have had if I can just go to my desk and sit down and work. Yeah. So it's, I don't, I don't know that it's always the best to work from home, but I kind of separate my day. Like when I'm ending my work day, I might say, okay, I'm going to cook dinner and listen to a podcast and then I'm relaxing for the evening or I'll go to the gym and then come back and make dinner, um, or have plans to do like happy hour with friends or dinner with friends or maybe I'm going to an event opening so I try to find ways that kind of put an end cap on my work for the day to help me mentally transition yeah do you ever feel like you get stir crazy being in the house all day um sometimes but I usually have enough appointments and just like social things going on that I get out and so I'm more of a homebody like 
there are days where I'm like, or weeks where I think, oh my gosh, I haven't left the house in three days. I should probably go do something. And I'm totally fine with it. Um, but it's nice to get out. So <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's going to be me in the winter. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. A couple of quick fire questions mm-hmm. before, before we wrap up. So just say the first thing that comes to your mind, but I'll warn you, they start off easier and get harder. Okay. So I'm scared. Yourself. Okay. Favorite color. Black? I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> Favorite day of the week? Saturday. Favorite hour of the day? Uh, 11 p.m. <laughs> What's one thing that you wish more people knew about you? Um, okay, this is a little bit longer answer, but oh, it's um, I, I had someone come up to me once and say, um, you're really beautiful, but you're so nice. So you must have went through a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really, that was really a, a big assumption. But I, but I can say that sometimes I look at other people who, I just they look like they have it all together. And I think um, sometimes people look at me and think I have it all together. But um, you know, I don't. No one does. Yeah, I'm flawed. I make mistakes. Yeah. I'm going through things too. Mm. Yeah, well said. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Oh my gosh, there's this, um, I don't know the name of the place, but it's on Seamless, and it's just like sushi, gyoza, which are like pan-fried dumplings, and Mm -hmm. then this veggie fried rice, and I've ordered it twice on Seamless in the past week, which is bad, guys, I don't, I normally, I got groceries today, but Mm -hmm. I was traveling last week, and I hadn't made it to the grocery store, um, this week until today, which is Friday. And so I ordered out a couple times this week, which I never do. And I was like, man, this could get very expensive and be very bad because it's delicious. That's amazing. It's good. You like know your thing yeah. when you're in a pinch. What is the best and worst advice you've ever received that you can think of? Oh my gosh. The worst advice. Hmm. Best advice. Actually, we really just need best because who wants to know the worst advice? Yeah, I know. I'm trying to. Th- I know I've gotten bad advice before, but yeah. I can't think of it. It's um, like that song that says, "Advice is a form of nostalgia." That's yeah. just like shooting up your old stuff to someone else. Interesting. I haven't heard that. That's yeah. Oh gosh, that's so true. Because um, it's so subjective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the best advice. Well, I don't know if this is advice, but I just went to that coaching training in Atlanta and the facilitator has been coaching for 30 years and she is full of so much wisdom. And something she said that struck me is when we make space, the universe will fill it. And I think that's really that's so beautiful. <laughs> My jaw literally dropped. <laughs> because when we think of making space in our lives, usually that means we have to give up something. And usually that means loss. And usually that means grief. And that's really hard. And we don't want to do it. But this whole year for me has been about the things that I've lost and grieved and mourned and given up. And there is now space. And it's being filled by these incredible things and people that I didn't expect. Wow. That just like hit me really hard. Like I like my whole stomach like <laughs> I saw your felt face. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Yeah. I, I think I'm like going through a transition too. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, it's just yeah, it was just like a really good one. you know, some pieces of advice go like yeah. right in, like no filter, yeah. like 
Yeah, that was really good. Okay, greatest lesson on family? Mm. Just accept each other. Greatest lesson on creativity? It's a practice. Greatest lesson on relationships? They all take hard work. Mm. Greatest lesson on spirituality, God, what do you think happens when we die, all of that? It's a process and no one knows. (laughs) Nice. Um, what is one thing that you're afraid of, but you're doing any, anyway, you're challenging yourself with vulnerability. Yeah. Okay. You can invite five people to dinner. Who do you invite? What do you cook for them? And what do you hope you get to talk to them about? And what do you hope doesn't come off at the table? Oh my gosh, this is really hard. I should have prepared. Okay. I want to, I think I want to talk to all my power ladies. So I think it's going to be. Like Elizabeth Gilbert, oh, Brene Brown, oh Anne Lamott, Glennon Doyle Milton, and my friend Ruthie Lindsay, who I already know because she's so much fun. Oh, she's so cool. She's so cool. I follow her. Yeah, she's amazing. She's so cool. So five power ladies. Can I sneak in because? Yeah, sure. Okay, we can add Those a sixth are like one. all my yeah. favorites. Thank you. Um, I. I want. I first of all, I would not cook for them because I'm not a great cook. We would we, we would get o- those order something from Seamless. We would yeah. get those dumplings <laughs> and sushi, and we would have bottles of wine, and we would um, we would talk about everything because I think with that group, there's nothing you would not talk about. Yeah. So I think we would talk about life. I think we would talk about, you know, divorce, relationships, sex, love, hopes, dreams, disappointments, failures, fears, um, all the really fun stuff. Oh. That sounds, can we uh, make that happen? Yeah, right I'll, now? I'll get on I'm it. Ready. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Okay, so this is really just a way for you to recommend things in different mm-hmm. categories, but I frame the question as you're trapped on a deserted island and you can only bring with you one TV show, one movie, one music, album, artist, whatever, um, one book, and one food. So it can be something you've loved forever, okay. or it can be things that you just want to recommend to people now that you think they should watch or okay. see or read. So and podcast. Oh yeah. Ooh. Okay. Podcast. Death, sex, and money. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. She was one of the people interviewed on that the turnaround. Okay. So that she was really good on that. Yeah, she's great. Um, she's such an awesome interviewer as well. Um, TV show, The Leftovers. I haven't seen that. It's, Is that Netflix? Mm, it's HBO. Okay. It's just it's heartbreakingly beautiful, and the way they wrapped it up was just stunning. Okay. Um, and it's very existential. And, Ooh, cool. Um, What's it about? It's about this um, town that, well, it, it, there's like a day in the world where people disappear. And some people are left over. Oh, and they don't know if it's true. like the rapture. Everyone's trying to figure out how, where did these people disappear to? Where did they go? Why were they chosen? And so it's about... It's really about the stories of those who are left behind and how do they cope and how do they connect with one another and how do they find meaning in their lives. And and so there is this kind of cult-like group called the Guilty Remnant that is, um, they dress in all white and smoke cigarettes and they don't talk and they are there to remind people of what happened and to say like, you can't move on with your life really like we should be in mourning and wow. anyway it's really intense but um it just asks just one these, season there are i think three or four just mm-hmm. wrapped like they there's no more season so you could you could binge the whole thing mm-hmm. and it's i don't know it's just beautiful because i think it it asks a lot of questions of meaning about life and why we're here and how really ultimately like relationships and how we connect with each other yeah even though there's a lot of like weird stuff because one of the one of the co-creators was the guy who 
one of the guys who did Lost. Mm-hmm. So there's like a lot of supernatural elements, right? And things that are just kind of mind bending, but it's, it's really beautiful. Oh, cool. I'm excited. Um, movie, probably A River Runs Through It because, well, I also like the book, but the movies just the, it's set in Montana and it's, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's these two brothers, like one is played by Brad Pitt and I forget the other actor, but um, Brad Brad Pitt's character is like the younger, more irresponsible, and it's like you know it's kind of the story of like family and how we relate to each other and our expectations for each other, and ultimately, you know what's redeemable and what's not, mm-hmm. and so it's a really beautiful um, and sad. I like sad things. Yeah, <laughs> and um, all the good suggestions right now. Let's see, food, pizza. I love pizza. What's the best pizza in New York? Well, let's see, there are different kinds. So. There's a place in Bushwick called Archie's. Oh, I thought you were going to say Roberta's. Uh, Roberta's is pretty good. But, um, you know, Joe's is good if you want a classic slice. There are Joe's. All, like, there's one in Williamsburg. There's some in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want, fan- not fancy pizza, but like the um, Neapolitan style, Polly G's in Greenpoint is so delicious. If you want something that's different, go to Archie's in Bushwick because it's um, like a thicker kind of pizza that mm-hmm. we would get in the Midwest. But it's not heavy. It doesn't sit cool. in your gut. You know, oh, like nice. a... Um, yeah, those are some of my top recommendations. And then, what'd you say? You said TV, music, music podcast, a reality podcast, so mm-hmm. music and book. Okay. A book, When Things Fall Apart by Pema and Children, which I read this year. My roommate actually gave it to me. She said, I think you'll like this, and it changed my life. Cool. It was all, it's all about letting go and just being okay with not knowing. And it's very, you know, she's a, a Buddhist. Yeah. And so it's very, you know, steeped in Buddhism, but it's beautiful. Um... And music, oh, this is hard for me to pick one thing. But, you can say a couple. Um, I was just listening to the new War on Drugs album, which is really beautiful. And um, Samfa's debut album is pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, I gotta say, the new Kesha is amazing. Have you listened to it? Okay, it's very different from her old stuff. Oh, it's all about way, huh? like women and empowerment cool. and you know, her story of what she went through. Yeah. And I found it to be like there were a lot of parts in it that I thought were really relatable for me. Cool. And I think for many women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So what is something that you wished you got to talk about that you wish someone would ask you the name of this podcast is let it out mm. so is there anything you feel like you still want to let out did I ring you dry for all of your mm. wisdom I anything mean anything you wish I would have asked <laughs> you did a great job you asked a lot of really poignant questions um you know I, don't, I can't think of anything else I, I feel like we just had feel therapy good. I feel good somebody told me once that a good interview should feel like therapy for yeah. the guests so well it did job great job <laughs> thank you so much for doing this of you, course this was this was a delight it was my pleasure thank you okay that was our episode with Tina Smaker. I loved this conversation I'm hoping you did too and We've got an emoji for you. I have a special guest here to record this outro with me. It's the fourth time I've tried recording it. <laughs> well, we're going to do the sponsors first, though. We're going to do the sponsors first. So who's our first sponsor? we got Splendid Spoon. That's right. We love Splendid Big Spoon fans. in this family. Oh, yeah. Big fans. Yeah. They have nutrient-dense, whole foods-centric yep. soups. Made into soup. 
Yes. Delicious. They also have smoothies and uh, this lovely acai smoothie, Ooh. this smoothie that I loved with avocado that was beautiful. They have this really great kitchari. That's my favorite. Kitchari is this Indian dish that oh, you've probably that heard really all about in the Divya's Kitchen episode if you listened last week. Anyway, their soups are amazing. We have them in my fridge. We should probably go eat some later. We should. Yeah. They're great. And what do they do if they want to try it? You go to splendid.to slash let it out 20. All one word. Let it out 20. I feel like you're yelling at them, but I'll say it one more time. Okay. Splendid.to slash let it out 20. And this will give you $20 off your first order. That's a lot of dollars off. Would you a buy lot Splendid of off. Spoon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. With yeah. your $20 off code? Yeah. That... And where would you go? Just to reiterate. Okay, well, I would, I would go to splendid.to slash let it out. 20. And then you have soup that's healthy and delicious mm. waiting for you mm. at your door. That's right. That you just have to heat up. That's right. You Easy. have to clean your kitchen. Just a pan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could microwave it. I don't have one. Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, but you could. You One could if one you could. so desired. You yeah. could even drink it cold, which is what I do often because yeah. I'm impatient. Well, they have the smoothies. Those are probably pretty right. cold. Exactly. Anyway. We love Splendid Spoon. Try them out. Who else do we love this week? We love uh, care of. the care of. That's who we love. <laughs> no, Just not, to remind you. One, yeah. <laughs> sorry. It's uh, okay. Don't be sorry. We love care of vitamins. Um, you know, they come in a fun packaging. They do the cool quiz that comes in this like gorgeous tower with lots of fun little colors and it's got your name on it. Yes, it's personalized, which is lovely. They are a boutique vitamin store that curates for you specific supplements for your body's unique needs because we're all really different. That's right. You, Nick, need different supplements than me. That's right. Because we're different people and bio-individuality is beautiful. Mm -hmm. So... You go to their website, you take a brief quiz. You took the quiz. What did you did. think of the quiz? I liked it. Yeah. And from there, it asks you questions about your health goals, your diet, your lifestyle. And within minutes, you have a custom curated grouping of supplements that can be delivered right to your door. And they're great. I love them. So what do people do if they want to try care of? Like we, you know, we love it. They probably want to try it. Oh, where, yeah. where do they go? We go to takecareof.com. And then use the code Katie, and then you get 50% off your first order. Yeah, that's takecareof.com, and they use the code Katie. That's also my name. Oh, yeah? How do you spell that? K-A-T-I-E. And if you use that code, it gets you 50% off off your your first order. Just the first one, though. That's right. Yeah, just the the first one. one. Yeah, but you're going to want to do a second one because they're great. That's right. Okay. Let's give the people what they want. The emoji. Oh, the emoji for this week is the cone with all the festive confetti and stuff flying around it. We don't know what that cone is. It's the party emoji. Yeah, but I feel like it's kind of vague. Like, what's that cone doing? Everyone on here knows exactly what we mean. No, I know. But, like, is it a horn? Is it just, like, a thing to deposit confetti? I think it's a party hat. With confetti coming out of oh, it. Oh, could be. Could yeah. Be. Yeah, that one. So that's the emoji for this week. Yeah, why is it a cone? I don't I, know. I, or it's, you know, those things that, um, oh gosh, that you, it's like flags, little like flags at parties that people put up. Uh-huh. And it's like a triangle flag and then like a little bit of 
of string and then Could another be. triangle flag. It looks like a cone, though, like cylindrical. Right. Yeah, because it's got a side to oh, it. It's yeah, not yeah, flat. Yeah. Well, before, I think before they updated it, they were more they were more one-dimensional. I know. Yeah, they were. Okay, either way, send us the party it's emoji. A good time. If you're still listening right now, it's a goddamn miracle. That's strange. Because this has been the you worst. Should, you should hang up. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> okay, we really need to go now. Okay, bye. We love you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Nick loves you, too. Yeah, he does.